Let's go ahead and take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. And uh, I'd ask you just to bear with me today as I was just sitting here pondering and considering and meditating on, on this morning's sermon. My natural tendency over the years of, that I've been in ministry has been in times like these to take my emotions and to simply separate them and set them over here while this is happening. And then once this is done, I can then take those emotions back in and then live out those emotions in the privacy of my home. And I was just sitting here thinking about about the sermon and thinking about what I'll be preaching today in particular. And it was almost like the Holy Spirit said, don't do that today. Don't do that today. Sometimes it's good, and I I see all through Scripture times that God uses the emotion of the people that He uses in the Bible to indicate to those who are reading what it is that God's doing in their lives. In fact, if you look at the book of Psalm, it's pretty much David wearing his feelings on his sleeves. It's David voicing out and expressing how he feels emotionally and spiritually in the midst of hard times of his life. And so this morning, uh, I'm going to try to do that a little bit more than I normally do, and I'd ask you just to bear with me. When I got the call on Friday that my dear, dear friend had lost his life in a tragic accident on 465 around Indianapolis, he's one of the most manly men I knew. When I first got to Rochdale uh, and was serving there as their youth pastor... Uh, it was one of the most unlikely friendships that would develop. I can remember the first time that Dave met me. His daughter was in our youth group. And I can remember his, his immediate sense of protection over her, knowing that I was coming in, my wife was coming in, that we were coming in as, as just a young youth pastor and had tons of ambition and very little knowledge. I still feel like that. Tons of ambition, a little bit of knowledge. Uh, he was very protective of her and the youth group as a whole as they came in and as we came in. And I can remember in my first impressions of Dave Van Sickle Jr., it was, it was that he was just a man's man. That, that you weren't going to change him. You weren't going to get him to act different in front of one crowd or another. He was just who he was and you better either love it or walk away. That was your options. And so I didn't know how our relationship would develop. I didn't know how our friendship would develop over the years. But one thing led to another. And I think the thing that we both appreciated so much about each other was what you saw was what you got. Uh, There wasn't any uh, facade or acting going on. I, I knew who Dave was and Dave knew who I was. And it was on that grounds of trust that we began to build a very, very special friendship. Our age is quite different from one another. I don't know how old Dave was when he passed away on Friday, uh, but I know he's quite a bit older than me. Could have been my dad, probably. But uh, we were just dear, dear friends. And there were some things that I learned from Dave along the way that, to be honest, are going to fit perfectly into this morning's sermon. And I didn't think about that till. I was just sitting there thinking about the sermon and what's happened this week. And so 
I'm going to try to tie some of those things in. But one of Dave's most prominent statements or sayings that he always said was cowboy up. That's, that gives you some perspective right there, doesn't it? Okay, immediately you already can draw some conclusions as to the kind of guy that this was. And if Dave didn't feel like you were giving it your all, that's what he would tell you. He would come up to you and he would say, cowboy up. I'll never forget, I had a Bible project. I was telling my wife about this late last night. I had a Bible project that I was working on and we had hit a, a little bit of a speed bump in the road in that Bible project in the fact that the Bibles had been produced and we were ready to go from the production of the signatures, which you all know what those are. Those are the pieces of the actual Bible that go inside the cover. We needed to get the signatures to the covers so that the covers could then be put on, those, they could be bound together and then shipped off to their final destination. And I'll never forget one day we had started this Bible project and then I hadn't said anything about it for probably two and a half months I hadn't said anything about it, and, and everybody was left wondering what's going on with this. And so anyway, long story short, Dave walks up to me one Sunday morning, and he said, Seth, what's going on with them Bibles? And I said, well, Dave, here's the thing. I said, we've, we've hit a problem. I said, we've, I'm having trouble figuring out who's going to transport them from the place that they're at to the place they need to go to get them bound. And he said, well, how long have they been ready to go? And I said, well, they've been ready to go for about two and a half months now. And I'll never forget, this is what he said. He said, you've got to be kidding me. It's literally what he said. And I kind of stepped back and I said, I, I just haven't had the, I don't, I don't have the means and I don't know how to get them from there to here. We're talking about, I, I don't know, probably four or 5,000 pounds of paper. And I didn't have anything to do that at the time. He said, you're telling me that those Bibles that lost sinners desperately need have been sitting in a warehouse for two and a half months just because you can't figure out how to get them from there to there? I said, yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I don't like how you're saying it, but yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I'll never forget. He said, what are you doing Tuesday? I said, I don't have anything planned. He said, well, you do now. He said, you meet me at the church at 6 o'clock in the morning. We'll hit Bob Evans on our way down. He said, I'll grab my trailer and we'll have him there by Tuesday. That was the kind of guy Dave was. He was a guy that when nobody else would get it done just for whatever reason, he'd step in and figure out how to get it done because, because, listen closely, he knew that God's plan in the lives of those that desperately needed those things were in the balance. His motivation was not just the idea of getting it done so that he could say he got it done. In fact, I don't know if he ever told anybody he did that. I don't know if I ever even really brought it up except for just we got him from here to there. Dave did it because he knew there were lost sinners that desperately needed the Word of God and he was convinced that God wanted to use him to get those Bibles there as fast as he possibly could. I love Dave Van Sickle Jr., He's one of the dearest friends I've ever made on this side of heaven. And he will be dearly missed. But one of the things that I love the most about Brother Dave was the fact that he was what I'm calling this morning a keepsake Christian. A keepsake Christian. The things he did for God, they meant something. Not just to man, but I believe they meant something to God as well. 
You'll remember last week we began a a series. I didn't intend to turn it into a two-part series, but nonetheless, here we are. A series entitled Making It Into the Keep Pile. Making It Into the Keep Pile. And you'll remember we shared with you that, that there are two types of Christians in this world mentioned right here in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. Let's go ahead and jump in at verse... Uh, We'll jump in at verse number six, I believe. Uh, verse num- Well, I'll tell you what, let's jump in at verse number one and we'll just read down through verse number 12 or 13. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter number three, verse one, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. There's your two Christian types. You've got those that are spiritual, those that are carnal. He says, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Just to be clear, this is in no way, shape, or form meant to be a compliment. He's looking at the Corinthian believers and he's implying that they should be more spiritually mature than they currently are. And he's telling them, I have to change the way I preach to you because of how little growth there has been in this church. That's what Paul is saying to Corinth. He's saying there's been so little growth spiritually in your lives that when I talk to you about spiritual things, i got to talk like I'm talking to brand new babies in Christ. I can't talk to you about the deeper spiritual things. I've got to keep it super surface level. It's not meant to be a compliment. He goes on in verse 2. He says, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So that neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. (coughs) Excuse me, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation... Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you bless now as we open up your word, and would you help us, Lord, to be able to to preach it the way that you want us to. Father, I, I ask today especially... That you, might, that you might maneuver my heart in the way that you want me to go. Help me to say the things that you want me to say. And Lord, help me to say them in the spirit and attitude and emotion in which you'd have me to say them. Lord, let this all be pleasing to you and may you use it to deeply impact the hearts of your people. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we're looking at this passage of Scripture, I want to quickly review what we looked at last week, and that is this simple fact. Carnal Christianity is combustible Christianity. 
The Bible teaches in verse 15, it says, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. The idea is, as we go forth and go about living our Christian lives, there are people in this world who live out Christianity with their own selfish ambitions. They have their own vision of what they'd like to accomplish. They have their own desire of what they like to do. And they have their own motivation for why they do what they do. And while men may not always see the backdrop of what's happening or behind the curtain, if you will, of what's happening inside of a Christian's life, God can see it. He knows what motivates you. He knows why you do what you do. He knows how you're doing it. He knows all the ins and outs and details of your service and whether it's self-centered or whether it's Savior-centered. And what we come to find out last week is that a self-centered carnal Christianity, when placed under the, judge, the judgment flames of heaven, will be disintegrated. It will be devoured. At which point all will know what it was that we were working for. Or who it was we were working for. We saw that first of all, we, we asked the question, what makes a Christian carnal? Well, what is it that, that I can point to and say, okay, I know that I'm a carnal Christian because this is an attribute in my Christian life. And we, we mentioned three to you last week. The first one was that carnal Christians are stagnant Christians. They, they, they are perfectly comfortable and content to go years and years of time with very little next to no growth. Just stagnant and perfectly fine with it. They never feel uncomfortable in their stagnant nature or their stagnant behavior. They're just happy to just, to just not even move an inch. Okay? Carnal Christians, not only are they stagnant according to verses 1 and 2, that's why he says, I've got to feed you with meat, and, or why I've got to feed you with milk and not meat, is because you're not growing. Okay? By the way, I've got to say this the way Paul talks here is the way Dave talked to me while I was at Roachtail. I, there were a lot of times that, I'll be honest, had I, not, had I not taken the time to just swallow what Dave said, it would have hurt me. I mean, I would have been genuinely offended. I can remember specific times where Dave would say something, and in the moment I'm thinking, I can't believe he just said that. Nobody has ever said that to me. Like, he, he talked to me in a way that nobody ever talked to me before. And at, at first it was a little bit unsettling, and I thought, man... I don't know about this guy, but the more I got to know Dave, I began to understand. He literally had my best interest at heart. He wanted to see me, as a, as a young man at that time, he wanted to see me grow up to become the man of God that God wanted me to be. He didn't want me to settle for second, third, or fourth best. He wanted me to reach for the kind of Christian life that God was calling me to. And for that reason, there were times he'd just step right in and he would say exactly what he was thinking, even if he knew it was going to really rub me the wrong way. And I see Paul say this to the Corinthian believers. And my first initial impression is, oh, I don't know about that. But I tell you, as they begin to absorb it, we can see when Paul writes 2 Corinthians that this kind of speech led of God was used mightily in their lives. So the carnal Christian is a stagnant Christian. Secondly, the carnal Christian is a selfish Christian. 
We saw in verse number 3 between the envying and the strife, the divisions, the kind of walk that they had, that they were really more interested in self than they were in the Savior. And then finally we saw that carnal Christianity is shallow Christianity. It just stays right here at the surface. It never dives into the deeper things. They were shallow in their arguments, shallow in their abilities, and shallow in their appropriation. They wanted to say that it was Paul and Apollos that made all the difference in their spiritual lives. And Paul says, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? I'm, I'm a sinful man just like you. I was an unbeliever. I was going out and killing other Christians. Don't you attribute anything to me. I am who I am solely by the grace of God. Don't give any credit to me. You give credit to whom credit it is due. It is God that gives the increase. And so with this in mind, we concluded with this simple thought. That the reason why carnal Christianity causes such disdain in the heart of God is because in reality, the religion of a carnal Christian is really a worship of self over a worship of the Savior. The reason that the service of a carnal Christian is combustible The reason that whenever tried by fire of heaven, the works of a carnal Christian will be consumed. Some of us will look at that and say, that's not fair. That's not right. I mean, at least the work still got done. Some of us would look at it, especially in our world today, here in the United States of America. We believe in free market capitalism, where you work and you earn and you get it done. and That's how we all survive. We look at that and we say, how could God do such a thing? I'll tell you why He does it. Because God sees things you can't. God sees things I can't see. God sees things in me that you do not know about. And there are times that God looks into my heart as your pastor. There are times that God looks into my heart and says, no, 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 no. I I don't want that. I'm not interested in that. And I go ahead and do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. But God knows my heart. And you see, that's the problem is the fact that I do things in my own time or I'll do things according to my own desire or I'll do things for my own selfish motivation. And God sees all of these things and we've got to be careful and thoughtful of whether it is that we're serving God from a place of carnality or whether we're not. God's wrath over that truth that the religion of a carnal Christian is the worship of self over the worship of a Savior is what ultimately causes all of those works to be devoured. Now, with that also in mind, we'll move on to a new thought this morning regarding a keepsake Christian. While carnal Christianity is combustible Christianity, I believe also that Christ-centered Christianity is what we're calling keepsake Christianity. You know, I love, many of you know this, and I, I hate to use this as an illustration again. You've got to give me a little bit more time to build my illustrations, okay? Uh, I, I was talking to a preacher one time, and he said, Preacher, you've got to branch out on your illustrations. And I said, well, I'm trying. He, he said, I know what the problem is. I said, what's that? He said, lack of experience. I said, you know, you're probably right. What he was basically saying is you haven't lived long enough to get good illustrations. So if you hear me use the same ones three or four times, that's really what it boils down to. I'm getting there. Just got to have a little bit more time. 
There's this one illustration that just really comes to my mind when I'm thinking about this idea of making it into the keep pile. I used one illustration last week. I'm going to use a different one this week. I love, 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 love to go out and metal detect. It's one of the funnest things that I enjoy doing. I don't get to do it very much, but when I do, I can, I can literally be out metal detecting for six hours and think that I was out for 30 minutes. That's how much I enjoy it. And I think what I enjoy the most about it is I feel like kind of a mixture between an archaeologist and a detective. I'm out there and I'm going through and I'm sifting through and I'm finding different little pieces and things. And in my mind, I'm trying to develop in my imagination why that's there, how it got there, how it was connected to the other piece I found over there. And I just I enjoy it so much. But just as the illustration I used last week, so is this illustration. I don't always keep everything I find. In the process of metal detecting, I generally have, again, three piles. I have a worthless pile. I have a really neat pile, kind of interesting. And then I have a keepsake pile. Now, to give you an idea of what goes into which pile, the worthless pile is the pile that doesn't get kept at all. The moment I pull it out of the earth, it goes back into the earth. Okay? I can't tell you how many times. Oh, it just drives me crazy. It's one of the most frustrating things about metal detecting. You're out there metal detecting, metal detecting. You go, bing, 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 bing. And the first thought in your mind is, I have I've struck it rich. I have found a golden coin. I mean, that, you can't help it. Same deer hunters, you know what I'm talking about. When you're out deer hunting and you hear a squirrel behind you, it's the same thing. Same, you hear the squirrel and it's hopping. And in your mind, you're imagining the hooves of a monster buck one at a time working their way towards you. And then it comes around the tree and it's a little chirping squirrel. Okay, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's that same idea. Okay, I'm going through and I'm bing, 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 and oh, I get excited. I'll grab my shovel, I'll start digging. And I'll go right and bing, 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 and I'll grab my shovel. I'll keep digging again. I'll dig a good six, eight inches deep. I'll dig a hole that's this big around if I have to, trying to figure out what's dinging. And finally, I'll get to the point where I go over the hole and there's no ding, but I go over the pile and there's a ding. Now I know I'm getting close. And then I grab my little pin and I start putting that pin on that pile and I wait for it to start doing its thing like this. And finally, I'll pull it out. And after 25 minutes of hard work and completely drenching through my clothes, I found me the most amazing tiny piece of barbed wire fence you've ever seen. <laughs> it's incredibly frustrating. I'm not going to lie. It, yeah, it happens 10 times in a row and you're about ready to quit being a metal detector. Okay? But I'll tell you what happened. So I, I've got the worthless pile. I throw it back in the dirt and, and sometimes I throw it harder than others. Okay? If I'm honest. And then I've got the neat pile, the stuff that I pull out of the ground that's really interesting that I don't want to throw away. And I don't know what I'm going to do with it. But you know, I was kind of raised that way. I was raised to keep things that I don't know what I'm going to do with. You say, come on. No, I'm being serious. Ask my wife. She'll tell you. I was raised to keep things that I'm never going to use. Okay? In fact, to this day, my mom won't mind me sharing it. To this day, my mom, almost every single time I see her, she has got something. Something that she has saved for the last 25 years that she wants to return to me. And I'll, I'll never forget, there was this one time, she, just probably two years ago, three years ago, she brought back some clothes that we, that we used to wear. And in her mind, she was thinking, you know, 
we could put them on our kids. And so I, I told her, I said, thank you. That, uh, this is really neat. I appreciate it. I opened the bag and it dawned on me. We didn't dress the same way in the 1990s that we dress today. Those clothes, they're just not going to work. Okay, the purple sleeves and the gray front with a Snoopy dog on the middle of it, all matching perfectly. I can't put that on my kids, not now. Okay, they probably say, what's Snoopy? Okay, you all know what I'm saying. But anyway, I, I really was. I was raised to really appreciate keepsakes. Now, all jokes aside, I really appreciate that fact. I'd rather it be that way than the opposite way. I'd rather be able to look at something and attach sentimental value to it and be meaningful to me than just not have sentimental value for anything in the world. Okay? But I will be honest, I've been raised to be that way maybe a little too much. Okay? To the point where I kind of tend to hold on to things that I shouldn't hold on to. And so I don't know what I'm going to do with the interesting pile. I thought about maybe getting like a big, uh, one of those big glass jugs, you know, and just drop it in there and fill it up with these just neat little trinkety things that we found. And then I don't know what I'm going to do with that. Just keep moving it around the house to random places and locations. I don't know. I don't know. But it's neat stuff. It's stuff that has a story attached to it. Old bullets and things like that that I don't want to just throw away because they're kind of neat. And, and they're attached to somebody somewhere at some point in history. And so I keep those. But I'll be honest, if I lose those, it won't break my heart. It won't break my heart if I lose those. But then I have the keepsake pile. Now, uh, to date, there's only four things that have made it in the keepsake pile. That's the pile of things that go in a tiny little box and gets tucked in the top shelf of my safe. That's the box of things that I don't want to lose. I found a, a one-cent piece from 1889 or 1887 out in the back field behind our old house. And it was out in the middle of the field. I mean, I'm just scanning through and it dings. And I'm thinking barbed wire fence. It's like the 12th ding of a barbed wire fence. And so I'm thinking barbed wire fence. And I dig it up and sure enough, I pull a coin out of the dirt. And I can't believe it. It's, it's just the neatest thing. And my children were with me when this happened. So we were all so excited as I was uncovering it. They're, you can imagine. They're all gathered around me like, I mean, they're so close I can't breathe. And I'm washing it off, trying to wash it off. I spit on it. I wash it. I have them spit on it and wash it. By the time it was all said and done, we all spit on it like twice. We get it all cleaned off and we pull it out. And, and, and I think it might have been Simeon the first one to say, he's, Daddy, it's a coin! I said, no, it can't be. Sure enough, it was. That's in my safe at home. It's not worth a lot of money, maybe $8, but it's worth a lot to us. In the same general area, I found, I believe it was three Civil War era buttons off of a Civil War jacket that I found in that same location. And I, I pulled those up and I looked them up online, figured out where they were from, when they were from. And I've, I've taken those items and I put those into the keepsake pile. Three different piles with three different purposes. And the question again that I ask today is how do I, as a Christian, make it into that pile? How do I make it into that pile? What kind of Christian is God looking for that He looks at and says, now that is an heirloom quality, keepsake Christian. That's what I want to be. You know, I wasn't planning to turn there, but turn with me to Romans chapter number 2. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter number 2. Ephesians chapter number 2. I don't have this reference written down, so I hope I'm getting you to the right place. Ephesians chapter number 2. 
Yes, this is it. Ephesians chapter number 2. And look at verse number 4. Hold your place there in 1 Corinthians because we'll be right back there. But look at Ephesians chapter number 2 and verse number 4. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace you're saved. And hath, now listen to the verses 6 and 7. Listen closely. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Say, preacher, what is that teaching there? That's teaching that God intends to use you and to use me in the portals of glory to reveal to all His created beings what His grace was capable of in the life of a sinful human being. I heard a preacher preach a sermon entitled The Trophy Case of Heaven one time. And that was the, press, the, the, the main point of his sermon. He was trying to say that based on verses 6 and 7, there's going to come a day where you and I are going to be raised up together to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so the ages to come, God might use our lives to show all else what His grace was capable of doing. I want to make it in that pile. I want to be a keepsake Christian. I don't want to just be interesting I don't want to just be something that barely makes it. According to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3, it tells us there that there's, there's gold and silver and precious stones. There's wood, hay, and there's stubble. And there are some that are going to make it, but there's literally going to be a stench of fire on their clothing because that's all they're going to have is the white robes they've got. That's literally the only reward they're going to end up with in heaven is the fiery stench of smoke on their white robes as they enter into the kingdom because their entire Christian life was... Was, uh, was lived literally for themselves. I don't want to be that Christian. And so as we look at this keepsake Christianity, there's some attributes to it that I see here in 1 Corinthians chapter number 3 that I want to look at this morning. The first one is the attitude of a keepsake Christian. The attitude of a, of a keepsake Christian. And we see it in Paul's attitude here in this passage. The first thing I see is that Paul was a humble believer. Notice in verses 5 and 6 again. or Yeah, verse 5, he says, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? I'll tell you who Paul was. I'll tell you my perspective of who Paul was. Paul was one of the greatest Christians to ever walk the face of the earth. That's my opinion. I believe that Paul exemplified what it meant to be an evangelist. And I'm talking about a, a soul-winning soul-centered evangelist. I believe that Paul exemplified what it meant to be a growing Christian. Think about it. In just a, a, a short period of time, Paul went from this end of the spectrum to that end of the spectrum. I mean, he grew. He grew and grew and grew. He was a man who was focused on the same things God was. I mean, I could go down through the list of the things that I admire about the Apostle Paul. But you know what Paul's opinion of, of himself was? He said, who is Paul? You know what he's literally saying? He's saying, I'm a nobody. I, I am not worthy of even one ounce of recognition. And you know, the first attribute of a real, genuine, keepsake Christian is that they are a humble believer. They don't need accolades. 
They do not need applause. They don't need anybody coming up and patting them on the back. They just need to do what God wants because it's what God wants. And if they are given any ounce of recognition or accolades, they are quick to turn it around and say, oh, glory and praise and honor be to the Lamb that was slain. Were it not for His blood that's washed every stain from my life, I would be the wretchedest sinner you ever met in your life. That's the life and the attitude of an heirloom keepsake Christian. The second part that I see here in the Apostle Paul, he says, Who is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. We don't have the time to turn there, but if you get the opportunity to, I'd like you to write this reference down under this point. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 talks about the humility of the believer. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. So we see here that the Apostle Paul was a humble believer. The second thing that we see is that he was a hardworking believer. He was a hardworking believer. And I know I mentioned these already last week, but I want to dwell on them a little bit longer this week than I did last week. He was a hardworking believer. Look at verse number 6. He says, I have planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. Now, obviously, Paul is still reaching back to this thought that he's, no, he's a nobody. He's just out there doing what God wants him to do. But at least he's doing what God wants him to do. I don't want to overlook that. When he says that I planted and Apollos watered, I praise God that Paul planted. And I praise God that Apollos watered. I praise God that you sign up to clean this church. I praise God that you run a bus route. I praise God that you invite people to come. I praise God that you're here. I praise God that you serve in the capacity that you serve in this church. I praise God that you are hard-working believers. I always hoped that Dave would come by and visit us here at Roach, or at, uh, from, from Rochdale here to Trinity. I always hoped he would. Because I always thought he, he would just, he, he would love our people. Because this is one of the hardest working churches I've ever seen in my entire life. I don't know if I've ever even been a part of a church that works so hard. When there's a work day, just about everybody comes. And they stick around, they get the work done. I mean, they work hard from start to finish. It's an amazing thing to watch. I love it. That's why I get so excited about what the future holds for our churches because this is a hard-working body of believers. And that's if I had to characterize Dave Van Sickle Jr. with one word, it'd be that, hard-working. That man was a hard-working man. But I tell you, God delights in a hard-working believer, a, a believer that doesn't just try to get by in their Christian life, but looks for opportunities to serve the Lord. And that's how Paul was. He was a humble believer. He was a hard-working believer. But thirdly, he was an honoring believer. Not honorable, honoring. Look at verse number 7. He says, So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. You know, he's getting to the fact that when it comes to, to harvest time spiritually, when it comes to a spiritual harvest, what are we? If it's not the Holy Spirit of God doing the work, if it's not the Word of God doing the work, if it's not God Himself doing the work, there's not going to be a spiritual harvest. That's the idea. If God is removed from the equation of spiritual harvest, there will be no harvest. 
Because God is the quintessential member who creates that spiritual harvest. He is the one who produces the the new birth. He's the one who produces a successful and vibrant and thriving and fruitful Christian life. If we become detached from the vine, Jesus said, we'll bear no fruit. The only way you and I as believers can bear fruit is if we remain attached to the vine, which is Jesus. We've got to be ever mindful of this. And what Paul is doing is he's giving honor to whom honors do. He's humble about his perspective of himself, but he is honoring in his perspective of the God that he serves. And while he's working hard to do what God wants him to do, he knows at the end of the day that it's God doing the work, not him. Finally, he was an honest, an honest believer. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Now here's where I see this beautiful level of honesty. He does not say, you are my husbandry. He says, you are God's husbandry. He doesn't say there in verse number 9, you are are my building. He says, you are God's building. You know what Paul's trying to remind them of? He's trying to remind them that the work he's doing is not his work, it's God's work. That's whose work he's doing. And he's only interested in God receiving the glory for it. He's completely transparent about who it is that he is working for and who it is that's doing the work. And how contrasting is that to what we see in ministry today? The vast majority of preachers that we see out and about today, are they not the polar opposite of everything I've just described to you? Instead of humility, there's great pride. Instead of working hard, they sit on their hands. Instead of honoring God, they honor themselves. Instead of being honest, oh, there's one attribute they do not have. It's the attribute of honesty. They will literally lie in the face of a lost individual in the name of Jesus to make money off of the cause of Christ. God have mercy on their souls in the day of judgment. When I see the Apostle Paul describing here the fact that he is nothing and that it's all the work of God, I see a man who's got the attitude, the makings of a keepsake Christian. God looks into his heart. You see, that's where it's at. Paul's not just saying this to the Corinthian believers. This is really who Paul is. And God knows that. He sees Paul. I I think probably there were multiple things that kept Paul in this attitude. We know he had a he, he called it a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. But he said it keeps him weak. And that it's by the grace of God that he is what he is, is what he gets at. And so God used that to keep him in that attitude. I believe God used his past to keep him in that attitude. As Paul thought back to the terrible atrocities he had committed previous to knowing Jesus as his Savior, the Christians he was responsible for killing, I'm sure it broke his heart to think back to who he was before Jesus. And I'm sure God used that to keep him in that attitude. But God knew his heart. And when God looked into Paul's heart, this is what he saw. He saw a man who was humble, who was hardworking, who was honoring, and who was honest. So we see the attitude of a keepsake Christian, but we also see the actions of a keepsake Christian. Look at verses 10 through 12. It says, According to the grace of God which is given unto me. Again, attributing to God every bit of effort he's putting in. But he says this, he says, As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation... And another buildeth thereon. 
but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. There's some things I see here in the actual work of a keepsake Christian. There are certain things about their service that makes their service something that God wants to keep. Something that brings pleasure to God. There's specific things about what Paul is doing here that God sees, not just his attitude, that's where it all begins, but God's looking at his actions and based on his actions, he's saying, now that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. The first thing we see here in the actions of a keepsake Christian is they build in or they build of God's own ability. They build of God's ability, not of their own. He says in the very beginning of verse number 10, according to the grace of God which is given unto me. This is a man who was building of God's ability. Why is it so important for us at Trinity Baptist Church to work of God's ability? I believe at the top of the list of why that's so important is that only God can receive the honor and the glory for what is accomplished. When we work in our own ability, it is so easy. Listen, it's so easy. I know it because I've done it. I hate to admit it to you, but I have done this. I have worked of my own ability, accomplished something, turned back and looked at it, and felt, you ready? Here's the word, pride in my heart. You know what? It might have gotten done, but it's going to burn. Because it was for me. And boy, there's been other times where I knew it was God's ability pushing me forward. And when I turned around and looked at it, all I felt was humiliation because I, I don't even feel like I did anything. It was God that did it. Boy, it's important for you and I as we serve the Lord Jesus to do it of God's ability. And whenever we are surrendering and submitting our lives to God's ability through His Holy Spirit to work in and through us, then only He can receive the glory. And so the first action we see here of a keepsake Christian is that they build of God's ability. You know what they're doing? They're using the right equipment. That's what they're doing. A keepsake Christian uses the right equipment when they're serving God. In other words, they don't use smoke and mirrors. They don't use television screens and misappropriated verses of the Bible. They don't toy with people's emotions to try to get the work done. They use the right equipment. They go straight to God and they, they rely on God to do the work for them. I've got a piece of equipment out there at the property. And I'm here to tell you, our build site would not have gone like it's gone if it were not for my brother having that piece of equipment. It's not mine. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. And you know, the truth is, we could have that skid steer sitting on the property. And until I climb into the skid steer and begin to operate the controls, it's just going to sit there and do nothing. The skid steer is only effective if I climb into it and let it do its job. And can I tell you something? It's a, I don't even know. T300. Does that mean anything to anybody? Is that the right number or something? I don't know. I don't know anything about equipment. Sorry about that. It's a big one. That's all I know. It's a big skid steer that my brother got. And I tell you, I'm so thankful. As we were putting a roof on, I was able to put the bundles of shingles in there 10 or 12 at a time and lift them right up to the edge of the roof. Boy, that was a help, wasn't it? All the rock that I've moved from here to there, from here to there, from here to there, over and over and over again. Boy, I was able to just come and take a whole scoop right up, maybe 2,000 pounds at a time and go dump it somewhere else. 
Powerful piece of equipment, but I had to get into it to use it. What happens is whenever we build of God's ability, we are climbing into the God that we serve and then just letting Him do the work. You know what a blessing it is. The second thing we see about the actions of a keepsake Christian is that they build to God's plan. At the end of verse number 10, it says, As a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and other buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. How he buildeth thereupon. Brother Kurt's an engineer. Things have to be done a certain way, don't they, Brother Kurt? There are certain requirements and standards that have to be met, certain things that have to be done, certain guidelines that have to be met. And one of the most important things that, that Kurt uses, I'm certain, is a plan. You've got to have a plan. You can't walk into the utilities that run through a city and try to run a, a, a piece of cable through there without having a, a legitimate plan to go by. The plan is essential. And can I tell you, dear Christian, what God is looking for now, today, as much as He's ever looked for it, is a Christian who will surrender their lives to His plan. Who will grab the plan of God and open it up and look into it and see what God wants. It breaks my heart to know how many Christians have just taken the plans that God's given them and thrown them into the back seat and choose to try to live their Christian life however they think they ought to live it. And we wonder why Christians are so aimless, so powerless, and so purposeless. Could it be that they've abandoned the plan of God written right here in these pages showing us what God wants from us? We've got an extraordinary set of plans that God's laid out for us. we just got to pick them up and use them. Not only does he build according to God's plans and build off God's ability, but he builds on God's Son. Oh, you talk about the right foundation for service. Look at verse number 11. It says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something? It is my prayer from now to the day Jesus returns that everything that's built right here at Trinity Baptist Church wouldn't be built on the soils of Brazil, Indiana, but would be built on the Lord Jesus. Built upon Him. That He would be the foundation of everything we do here at Trinity Baptist from start to finish. That is the right foundation. If you have the wrong foundation, everything else can crumble. But boy, when we build on Jesus, not on ourselves, not for our glory, but on Jesus, that's what it's all about. And then finally, the keepsake Christian builds for the glory of Almighty God. He says in verse number 12, he says, Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stuff. Why do you build on the foundation? You build on the foundation because you need to, to, to raise up a building that people are going to see. And when they look at the building, there's going to be some thoughts that they have. They're going to look at that building. and Have you ever passed a building that you thought, what were they thinking? Have you ever done that? I do. Coming from a building background, I do pretty regularly. There are times that I drive by. There's this one house on 40. I kid you not. It was, it was all about an 8-12 pitch roof coming up to a point. And because they didn't quite pitch it correctly, they got to the very tip top. And these roofs, somehow they came in shorter than these two roofs did. And so instead of, I, I don't even know, instead of getting the pitches right or whatever, they just decided to bring these on up the rest of the way and then bring these in the side of it. And it's got this teeny tiny little just thing on the top of there that just makes no sense to me at all. It drives me crazy every time I pass the building. Can I tell you what, I, what I'm honestly thinking? I'm thinking the builders did not know what they were doing there. That's what I'm thinking. 
And you know, I'm afraid that there's an entire lost world that does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior looking at modern day Christianity thinking, what are they thinking? What, what, what are they doing? When they, when they look into the, to the lives that we're living and the, into the things that we're doing, you know, one of the things I've seen online that's, that's caught wild, like wildfire is, is lost people mocking Christians who are recording and posting what they are supposedly doing for Jesus. And, and I think there's credibility to it. I, I, get, I get what they're saying. This guy, he goes around and he, he gives money to, to homeless people and, and says, Jesus loves you. That's what he does. And he records himself doing it the whole time. He's up here going like this. He hands him the money. Points it at the homeless person. Hands him the money. He says, Jesus loves you. And the homeless man looks at him like, and he points the camera back at himself. He walks away. And, and there are a lot of lost people. They look at this and they think, what, what is he doing? That's, that's not service to the king. That's service to yourself. You're getting sponsorships and you're getting people that are advertising on your channel because you're getting two, three hundred thousand likes at a time. That's not, that's not true Christianity. That's not true Christian service. It's about God's glory. Can I tell you something? When a Christian begins to build of God's ability, build to God's plan, build on God's son and build for God's glory, that's something that God's going to want and keep. The final thing we look at this morning is the achievement of a keepsake Christian. Look at verses 12 through 14. We're going to close with this. It says in verse 12, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. We see some things about the achievements of a keepsake Christian. The first thing I see about his work is that his work is rare. Did you notice that whenever he describes the materials being used to build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, he does not say copper, iron, and limestone. Just as durable, maybe more so. But he doesn't say that. Why does he say gold, silver, precious stones? Because those are considered rare. Because they're hard to come by. You know, I think keepsake Christianity is rare. It's hard to come by. The Bible says the eye of the Lord searches to and fro across the whole earth trying to find someone in whom He can show Himself faithful. The idea is as God's looking out over the world, He's searching, searching, searching for those who He would consider to be keepsake Christians who have the right attitude, who are, who are living out the right actions, who are aiming at the right achievements. And, and the goal is to find them so that He can use them for His honor and for His glory. And there's a reason why His eye has to search to and fro. It's because it's rare. It's hard to find. I believe that what God's doing in the life of Trinity Baptist Church is He's rearing up a bunch of Christians that God's going to look at and say, that's someone I'm going to use right there. You know, I, I'm so excited to see what God's going to use you all to do. I, I literally, I, I just, I'm just so excited. I believe that there are missionaries in this building right now. I, I believe there's evangelists. I believe there's preachers. 
in this building right now. I, I believe that there are, are soul winners. I believe that there are people who are going to help build this church. I believe that there are people who are going to achieve great things right here in Brazil, Indiana, for the cause of Christ. I believe that there are people who are going to go above and beyond what the former generation did for the cause of the Lord Jesus. I believe that with all of my heart. But it's rare. It's hard to come by. The second thing about the work of a keepsake Christian is that their works are revealed. It says in the beginning of verse number 12, now, uh, or uh, verse number 13, it says, Every man's work shall be made manifest. Everyone will eventually know who you were serving. This preacher may never know what your motivations were. The, this congregation may never know what your motivations were. But, but there's coming a day, a judgment day, before the bema seat of Christ, where our works will be tried. Christian, your works will be tried. You are not going to escape a judgment. Now, you will not be sitting at the great white throne judgment. You don't have to be concerned about you, whether your name's written down in the book of life or not if you know Jesus is your Savior. Now, if you've never trusted Him as your Savior, you've got great concerns that you need to address this morning. There is a judgment day coming for you, and it's not going to be what you did. It's whether you believed in what He did for you. Now, that's a terrifying day because no one stands at the great white throne judgment whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But if your name's written down in that book, there is another judgment day coming for you. A judgment day that we call the Bema Seat of Christ where your works will be tried. What you did in your Christian life will be judged according to the Bible. And the question is, will it stand or will it burn? The works will be revealed. Thirdly, His works are remaining. The Bible says there that the life of a person who who lives in accordance with God's Word and does what God wants him to do. In verse 14, if any man's work abide, there's the word abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. His works are remaining whenever it stands the test of the fires of heaven. His works will stand. The question then becomes, how many Christians' lives and the works that they did for God or supposedly for God will be burned up? How much of the work that I've done will be burned up. Only God knows. And then finally, His works are rewarded. Now this ought to be the lesser motivation. In verse 14 it says, that if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, the foundation of Jesus that is, he shall receive a reward. That's a wonderful thing. We don't talk about it very much here because I don't want that to be our primary motivation is because we'll get something out of it. There are too many people doing stuff just to get something out of it these days. There's a lot of people not doing anything hoping to get something out of it. Okay, that's all anybody ever wants is a reward. A reward for something or a reward for nothing. And I don't want that to be our main motivation, but it's a wonderful thought to consider that if we live the lives God wants us to live with the right motivation and the right aim, with the right actions and the right achievements, God will reward that. It's a wonderful, beautiful thought. Why does He reward it? Why are they remaining? What do we want when they're revealed? It's because they're received by God. This ought to be our greater motivation. It's because it's what God wanted. I was sharing with our Sunday school class this morning, and we'll close with this. You know, I, I'm afraid that there's a lot of things that we're doing that we think are pleasing God, and they're not. Okay? I shared a little bit of this idea with you last week, but I used the illustration in Sunday school this morning 
that I, I like coffee and I like root beer, but I found out I don't like root beer coffee. They had this can of root beer coffee in a little town in Iowa, and I saw it in the refrigerator. They had all these different random neat-looking things that you like coffee drinks that you could buy. And I saw this one that said root beer coffee, and I thought, oh, man. You've heard me use this before, I think, on Wednesday night illustration. Again, I'm trying on the illustrations. I'll get there. And I see this, this can in there, and it's, it's, it, it looks really good. The way they've got it looking on there, it looks like it's going to be creamy and, 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 and sweet with a hint of coffee, like a soda. I mean, it, it looks like it's going to be delicious. So I bought it. I paid like $6 for this tiny little can. I'll never do that again. And I bought it, I, I snapped it open, I put it in my mouth, and you talk about the nastiest, most awful taste I've ever had, literally, of anything I've ever put into my mouth. I've never had anything taste that bad before. I almost just, just sprayed it right out of my mouth, all over the street. One of my kids did. They wanted, I want to try it, I want to try it. I said, okay, there you go. And he literally put it in his mouth, and he just, he just sprayed it right back out onto the, onto the ground. Okay? You say, what, what's, your, what's your point, preacher? I like root beer. And I like coffee. But I didn't like root beer. It's not what I... I, I didn't know that because based on what I saw on the outside, I thought, based on the packaging, that it was going to be great. But then I put the contents inside my mouth and realized immediately that this is not what I wanted. I think there are a lot of Christians who have decorated the outside of the packaging to make it look to their fellow believers like they are what God wants. But if you snap it open and you hand it to God, He's just going to pour it out. That's not what I wanted. What is God looking for? He's looking for a keepsake Christian who's got the right attitude, who's living out the right actions, who's achieving His will for His glory. I can only imagine how sad it will be for the life of the Christian who tried to live a Christian life but did it with selfish intentions and selfish motivations and who will stand before God and say, have we not done this and have we not done that? And God will say, no, you didn't do it for me. You did it for you. And God knows the difference. Don't be a combustible Christian. Be a keepsake Christian. If you're here today and you're trying to use your works to get you into heaven, can I just tell you right now, right here, there's not a work you can perform that's going to earn your spot there. Jesus has done that work for you. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I encourage you today, don't try to keep working your way there. That's really selfish work. You know what you're really saying? You're saying, God, I don't want you to do it. I want to do it on my own. Well, why do you want to do it on your own? What's your motivation there? More than likely, it's so that you can say you got there on your own. That's not the way God designed this. He's done all the work. He wants to receive all the glory. And He asks all of you to just simply rest in what He's done for you. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, today would be a great day to come to faith in Christ. If you do know Jesus as your Savior and you're aiming to be a keepsake Christian, be sure you follow these principles. And I can assure you, God's going to catch, you're going to catch God's eye along the, way, along the way. And God's going to look at you. And he's going to say, now that's the person that I want to use.